<clears throat> Let's look this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week we covered verses 1 and 2. So we'll pick up with verse 3 this week. And I'll just tell you, and I know the bulletin says 3 through 5. I had every intention of making it through verse 5 this morning, but I'll just be up front with you. We probably won't make it past verse 3. So let's just get a good running start and begin reading with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's Word. Last week we did look at verse 1 and 2 as we begin our study of this letter, Peter is writing to Christians who are being oppressed. They're not yet to the point that they're persecuted by the government of Rome. There isn't any legal persecution coming from the emperor at this point. But as Christianity grows and spreads and people begin to live in accordance with God's Word and as followers of Jesus Christ, the society around them, the court of public opinion, is being turned against them. So while they're not being persecuted by the government or by the emperor, they are being persecuted by the people they know and love. Maybe their employers wouldn't let them continue to work in their job. If they had their own business, people would boycott their business. If they had family and friends who were not yet believers, they would be estranged, looked down upon and mocked by those whom they loved. And so in the midst of these present trials, the truths that Peter begins to write to them in this letter should give comfort to all those who hear it. In verse 2, he reminded them that they are the elect, the chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience. And they have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now when they hear these words, these words of comfort, that they in fact are the chosen ones of God, they should be encouraged. And so should we. We're not living in a time where we're oppressed and persecuted by the government, but society and the court of public opinion, just as it was in Peter's day, is beginning to turn, or it really has been turning, progressively more and more against biblical Christianity. And so it's easy to be discouraged when we look at 
the way things are going in the world. And certainly if you watch the news, because it's their job to make you afraid and discouraged, right? So they can make more money and you keep watching. Um, but it should comfort us to hear and to know that we are the chosen ones of God. Yes, the world rejects us. Yes, they reject all that we hold to dearly and believe. But God the Father in heaven, before the foundation of the world, according to His foreknowledge, knew you, chose you, elected you for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit is setting you apart from the world. And you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So that should comfort us. That is a right response to hearing these things. But it should lead us to another response as well. And that's where Peter picks up today in verse 3. Because as Peter continues this letter, he describes in verses 3 through 12, 3 through 12 what he calls our living hope. Our living hope. And the tone for this passage, when you consider the truths about our relationship to God in verse 1 and 2, and the claim to this living hope that we have that he's about to describe, the tone is one of praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. The word blessed is eulogitas, from where we get our word eulogy. Now, when we think of God and praising Him, we don't often think of the word eulogy. Because when do you eulogize someone? When they're dead. Is God dead? No. But the word eulogy, or to eulogize, eulogitas, it literally means to speak a good word about. To speak a good word about. Now usually, unfortunately, we wait till people are dead to tell them how much we like them. How good of a person they were and what they meant to us. We tell things like that to the family to comfort them when they're no longer here to hear us. But this is exactly what praise is. It's to speak a good word about God. It is to ascribe to God the worth that is already His. When we gather here on a Sunday morning to praise the Lord, we ascribe to Him the glory, the honor, even His own character that He's revealed to us. We give God praise. We speak good things about God to God. But it's not just when we're here on Sunday morning, right? This attitude of praise, this blessing that Peter calls us to give to God is not just for the corporate church when we're gathered on Sunday, but it is to be a lifestyle. So let me just pause and ask you here, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with giving God praise with your Tuesday afternoons? Well, let's back up a day. Monday mornings. How are you doing with taking every circumstance of your life and everything that comes at you and everything that you experience and using it as an opportunity to ascribe worth to God? 
I heard someone tell a story this week about a pastor years ago before automobiles and people brought their horse and buggies to church and it was a cold winter morning. The, the breeze would cut through anything. The snow was falling. It was a nasty day. But the pastor had a reputation for always giving God thanks for something. And it's as if the whole church gathered that morning, having, having trekked through the snow to get there, wondering what could this pastor possibly have to praise God for on this Sunday morning. So he got up, they listened with expectation, and he said, God, I thank you that not every day is as bad as this day. <laughs> There's always something that we can praise God for. We are called to give blessing and honor to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, can Jesus himself be God? Why does he word it that way? Simply, I think that the easiest way to understand it is that this speaks of the relationship of the Father to Jesus as it relates both to His humanity and His divinity. The Father is God to Jesus regarding His humanity. When Jesus was on earth, when He was a man, He worshipped God. He prayed to God. He served God. He pointed others to God. He was His God. But as the Son of God, He is so much more than just a man relating to God. As the Son of God, He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, even more, the God the Son. He is God incarnate. He is one with the Father. He is of the same essence, the same substance as God. Was it Philip who said... Jesus, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Not asking much, right? Just show us the Father. That'll be sufficient. What did Jesus say? Have I been with you so long, Philip, <laughs> that you don't know? That if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said in another place, I and the Father are one. So we're giving praise, we're giving blessing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ relating to this call of praise. We bless God, we praise God because He is the God who gave Himself for us. He is the God who sent Jesus for us. That alone, end of sermon, is enough reason to praise God. Amen? He is the one who has sent His Son to die for us. But he goes on. In verse 3, he also speaks of his abundant mercy. His abundant mercy. Now, mercy is simply a part of the character of God. It's in his nature to be merciful. There's this false idea when we think of God that in the Old Testament, God was this judgmental, full of wrath, hateful granddad in heaven that was just looking for every opportunity to punish his rebellious followers. But then we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes along and God softens up a little bit and decides to have some mercy. 
Well, I just want to let you know God doesn't change. He is immutable. From before creation, He has no beginning, but from before creation till the day this world burns and He establishes new heaven and new earth, He is and will be the same. Remember Israel in the wilderness after they had been delivered from Egypt. God has brought this great deliverance. He sent the plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh and has brought them out of bondage. They're in the wilderness. God is giving His law. Moses is taking too long on the mountain and what do they do? They melt down their jewelry and build a golden calf to worship. And they said, this is the God that delivered us from the Egyptians. You know, the statue they had just made. And God is angry. And He punishes them. But then Moses goes back up on the mountain. And yes, he's discouraged because of what's happening with the people. But Moses says to the Lord, if you're not going to go with us, don't let us even go from this place. You have to be with us. And he gets bold there in Exodus 33 down about verse 18. He says, please show me your glory. That's a request. Show me your glory. And how does the Lord answer? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So then in the next chapter, God puts Moses in this cleft of the rock. And he's going to pass by, let Moses see his hinder parts because he couldn't bear the full brunt of the glory of God. He would die. And so God gives them him this clouded, this veiled vision of his glory. And here's how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is what God says about Himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, after the Israelites had built that golden calf, God had every right to wipe them off the earth. But He reveals Himself to Moses. And the first thing He says is that He is merciful. When God chose to reveal Himself to Moses in a way that would be recorded for all time in Scripture, He revealed Himself as merciful. Now, to rejoice in God's mercy is to imply that we are in need of mercy. Remember the two men who prayed in the temple. One was a Pharisee. He stood, lifted his face toward heaven and prayed outwardly where everyone could hear, God, I thank you that I am not like that man over there. That you've blessed me and I bless you, God. But then you've got the tax collector on his knees, won't even lift up his face. And he's beating his chest. And what's he saying? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And before you can rejoice in this attribute of God, if before you can rejoice in God's mercy, you must recognize your need for mercy. I know how sinful I am. I know how sinful some of you are. You know how sinful you are. But you must recognize your unworthiness, your lowliness, your own humility, your own need for God's mercy before you can rejoice in it. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now how does God show His mercy to us? How is it applied Continue on in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. Has begotten us again. That is, He has caused us to be born again. Where have we heard that language before? John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus like cuts his compliment off and says, hey, unless one's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Enough with the formalities, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus says, how am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to be an old man and go back into my mother's womb and come out again? What do you mean, Jesus? Born again. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We must be born again, not a, not a natural birth in a natural way, but according to the Spirit of God. God's Holy Spirit must regenerate you, must bring you from death to life. You must be born again. You must receive life from the Spirit of God because by nature, there is no spiritual life in you. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you're walking according to your own desires, living after the lusts of your flesh and your own pride and what you desire, you are dead to God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now for Nicodemus, that meant forsaking his religious background. All his education, all his efforts at attaining righteousness, all that in which he had placed his hope, to be born again meant to throw all that away and find his righteousness, not in anything that he had done, but only in Jesus. Paul said, what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. All those things that he had accomplished and attained before he became a Christian, he said, I count them as rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ. Listen, God doesn't need your efforts to save yourself. 
God doesn't want you to meet Him in the middle. You can't impress Him with anything that you can do. In fact, if you trust in your own efforts, if you trust in your own righteousness, your own ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you will be damned. You will die in your sins and go to hell if you're trusting in your own righteousness. Because your righteousness is filthy rags in front of God. But this is the God that we praise. This is the God that Peter calls on us to bless because He is merciful. He is abundantly merciful and has caused us to be born again. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. We have reason to give blessing and honor and praise to God. He's caused us to be born again. He's begotten us again to... He didn't just save us from our sin, from ourselves, from hell, from our unrighteousness, but He saved us to... A living hope. A living hope. Now, biblical hope is not a wish or something that you desire to happen. I hope that we're having the rest of that potato soup we had for supper last night for lunch today because it was really good. I hope that. It might happen. It might not happen. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible describes. Hope, in the biblical sense, is a certain expectation that something will happen. You know it's going to happen, and that's where your hope is anchored. That's where you rest your soul in the hope that God gives When we were born again, we were born into a living hope. Why is it called a living hope? Because it is a hope that is perpetually alive. It's a hope that will not fade. It is a hope that will not die. It's not a hope that you'll lose confidence in in time. It is a hope that is perpetually alive. It cannot fail. Peter will go on and he'll give a... A deeper description of this hope in in verses to come. But in short, this hope, this is a hope of a future with Christ beyond this world. The hope that we have is a hope that doesn't drive our tent pegs deeply on this earth. We're looking for something better to come at the end of this life. It's a hope that can never be Put out. It's a living hope. Now, why is it a living hope? Why can this hope not fail? Because, verse 3 again, He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is a living hope. Because our Savior is a living Savior. Our hope 
is alive and will never die because Jesus is alive and will never die. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This was a problem in Corinth that Paul is refuting, that there are those who say there is no resurrection. But he refutes in this way, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, we're found false witnesses of God because we've testified that He raised up Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Oh, and it gets worse. Then also, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Jesus isn't alive, we have no reason to gather here this morning. If Jesus isn't alive, you have no hope that your sins are forgiven. For all you know, He died on the cross as an imposter and you're still dead in your sins. If He's not alive, you have nothing to look forward to. If He's not alive, those Christians who died before us are gone. They're dead. They're per they've perished. We'll never see them again. If Christ is dead, then our hope is dead. Paul went on, he said, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And not only that, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or of those who have died. You see, if Christ is dead, then our hope is dead. But since Christ is alive, our hope is alive. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, just as He rose from the dead, so also will those who trust in Him one day be raised from the dead. Those who have gone on before you, who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that one day at the resurrection, they will rise. You can know that because Jesus rose. If you die before He comes again, you can have confidence that though your body is in the ground, it will rise again. Why? Because Jesus rose again. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Him. Now, let's take this back to the context that Peter's writing in this letter. If you're living in a world that's hostile to Christianity where employers don't want Christian workers, where Christian business owners experience boycotts, where families and friends forsake those they once loved because their faith in Christ and obedience to Him. 
eventually the threat of death would come upon these Christians by the hand of Rome. Wouldn't you love to hear that the Christ for whom you, you are being persecuted promises a living hope in the resurrection? Yes. Absolutely. If there's the chance that persecution is going to come upon you and you're going to die for your faith in Christ, it wouldn't it be encouraging to know that the worst they can do to you is send you to be with the one you love the most? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whoopee! They're going to kill me. I'm going to go be with Jesus. Don't fear the ones who can only kill the body, Jesus said. All they can do is kill your body. But Jesus promises a resurrection of the body. Now what about your own life? Yeah, that would encourage them, but what about you? What, how does this apply to you? Now when you go through life as a Christian, you're going to experience trials. We've, you've all experienced trials, no doubt. Whether that's some disappointment or failure. If you're poor or hungry. If you lose everything. If you've lost loved ones to sickness or to tragedy. Or if they've disowned you. Because of your stand for the Bible and for Christ. Even if you yourself are persecuted... Doesn't it mean something to you that you have a living hope in Christ? You, the good people of Simmons Grove Baptist Church this morning, and our guests, if you are a Christian, if you have been born again and experienced the mercy of God, you have a Savior who is alive. And whatever happens here, whatever happens here, and I mean whatever happens here, you can have confidence that there is a day to come when all will be made right. Every injustice will be handled. Every sin will be dealt with. Every good deed will have its reward. We will be with our Lord who saved us. So yeah, I think we have good reason to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we pray? Father, we thank you. For every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. For the mercy you've poured out on us. Your abundant mercy. That you have caused us to be born again. Not only saved from our sin. From your judgment. From ourselves. But we're saved to a living hope. 
And that hope is alive because Jesus is alive. We worship you. We praise you. We give you the honor you are due. Because you are worthy. And Lord, should there be one here who doesn't know you, who has not experienced your mercy, who has not been born again, who knows nothing of this living hope, convert them today. Cause them to be born again. In Jesus' name, amen.